Hey, me again. Long time no see, right? Uh, Chloe is still waiting on the Xbox update for her grand... Uh, I almost keep, I almost want to say... I keep saying Gran Turismo, but that's more my thing. Grand Theft Auto V. So I just went live just a few minutes ago to uh, retell the Christmas 89 story, the very special, important story. And I thought I'd do it real festive. I had my... Uh, flag of Des Moines Santa cap on, and, um, or it's not really a Santa cap, it's more just a beanie, but then I also had the um, beard ornaments in. Looked really cool, very festive, but the problem was, every time I spoke, the beard, I mean, the jingles, and so it was like non-stop jingle bells the whole time I read the story. Now, if you want something more festive, you know, go check out that one. Um, also, I did that one on the Chromebook camera, which is real low fidelity, uh, real low quality. This one I'm doing on the Pixel 4 XL. So the angle, the view angle is actually worse on this one, but the picture quality and hopefully the sound quality is much better. This one I'm going to do without the jingle bells so you don't hear you know, this every time I say something. So if you already heard the story and didn't mind the jingle bells, you can go ahead and skip this video. But if you, uh, if you didn't see that video or you were driven off by the incessant jingling, to crown. So present it again, and probably for the last time in a very long time, is the fire and the glory and the unfortunate truth of what happened to the Transformers. Sunday, December 24th, into Monday, December 25th, 1989, 1411 22nd Street, Apartment 3, here in Des Moines. We lived in the ghetto. We lived in apartment three of a standalone, three-story, 12-unit apartment building. Apartment three was in the northeast corner of the bottom floor. Apartment 10, which will be important later, was in the southwest corner of the top floor, as far away from three as possible. It was Christmas Eve, and I couldn't sleep. My brother Jesse and I, eight and nine years old respectively, shared a room, and my bed was right under the window, affording me a good view of the southeast night sky. I lay there, sleepless, watching the sky for any sign of a certain airborne, venison-propelled carriage, commandeered by its cheerfully corpulent custodian. Instead, all I was presented with was a swath of stars, muted by the inner city's glow, winking back at me as if to assure me of their shared vigil. Rising starkly against the night sky was the KCCI weather beacon, oblivious to such trivial matters, singularly focused to the point of mania, with whether it was going to be colder or warmer or dry or wet. At long last, the search for Santa proved sufficiently exhausting, and I fell asleep. Next thing I knew, I was awakened very fervently by one of my parents, the other having an even harder time with Jesse, telling us to get up in a hurry. There was a fire. At first, I received this with skepticism, suspecting a clever ruse was afoot, and that we were about to be herded out to a pleasant parade of presents, but when I made it to the living room and received my first whiff of smoke, I realized this was no ruse at all. Entering the hallway was surreal and almost dreamlike. It was slightly hazy. There was a flurry of people, most of whom I recognized as other tenants, but could neither name nor assign the units. Firemen were also among those in the haze, trying to see us to safety. And with that same end in mind, Mom vigorously herded us out to our 1975 Chevy Nova, well, Dad ran back in to secure a uniquely valuable item. As it turns out, apartment 10 was the one that was on fire, 
And since we were completely diagonal from it, both horizontally and vertically, we were not in imminent danger. Of course, the fire department wasn't about to take any chances, and so they were evacuating everybody. Moreover, I do not believe that my parents were aware yet that the danger was so remote, and thus Dad's flight back into the house, even if not in reality, was in perception, and therefore intent, a mad plunge back into mortal danger. Meanwhile, Mom, Jesse, and I were seated in the car, seeing only the red glow in the sky and the commotion below, the building itself blocking our view of the inferno. Now, while I do not receive this... While I, sorry. While I do not remember this particular detail myself, I receive it in good faith from reliable sources that at one point during our automotive exile, I spontaneously broke into a chorus of Billy Joel's 1989 hit, We Didn't Start the Fire. Demonstrating for all present just what kind of grasp this nine-year-old had on the gravity and severity of the situation playing itself out before him. So transfixed were we with the scene that we nearly failed to notice Dad run towards, around, and finally behind the car to load a blanket-wrapped something into the trunk. After an unknown period of time, the all-clear was given, and we were able to return, but not before Dad rushed the unknown object back into the house ahead of us. I do not recall having any trouble falling back to sleep, but I guess Dad never did, opting to stay awake in the living room for any fear of possible reignition. When Mom and Dad woke us up around 7 that morning, in the customary hour for presents in our house, it was with full assurance that there was no emergency this time, but instead that it was time to get up and unwrap things. So we padded out in our PJs and took up residence in the shadow of the majestic old aluminum tree, awash in the glow from its trusty sidekick, the color wheel, buzzing its way through the cycle of red, green, blue, and yellow. Blue was my favorite, yellow my least. Once nested around the tree, the customary organized chaos ensued, and the neatly wrapped packages surrendered their carefully concealed secrets. We received some transformers from my Uncle Paul. These will be important later in the story. There were also several other things which I cannot remember. Then Dad handed Jesse and I each a squarish package to unwrap. They were game cartridges for the NES. His was Donkey Kong Jr. Mine was Excitebike. This revelation threw the room into confusion. <laughs> okay, that's overstating it a little bit. But it did cause Jesse and I to look at each other in confusion. You know, what gives? Clearly this was all a mistake. So I felt it was my job to straighten Dad out. Now, what follows is my correction address. If not exactly verbatim, then very, very close to it. Oh, wow. Thank you, Dad. Thank you very much. But these are Nintendo games. We, we have an Atari. You see, Nintendo is a way cooler, more powerful system, and our Atari just can't play them. Well, everyone, including yours truly, agrees that it's the UC part that makes it so great. As I was making my attempt to bring clarity to the situation, Dad's way of handling it was to just sit there and let the grin on his face get bigger and bigger. After I was done, he allowed the words to hang in the air for a moment before playing dumb and saying, Oh, my mistake. Well, here you go. And he reached back behind the couch and pulled out a much larger wrapped package. Our, to that point, greatest hopes and dreams and aspirations in life were then realized when an NES emerged from underneath the wrapping paper. And now, 
this was not only a Nintendo. This was the Nintendo. The one that came with the Super Mario Duck Hunt combo cartridge, uh, two controllers, and a zapper light gun. Welcome back, Eric. Sorry, this is an alternate take without all the jingle bells. Okay. So, ah, I interrupted myself at a very anticlimactic moment, so I'm going to go back just a little tiny bit here. I'm actually going to go back to the address. Once nested around the tree, the customary organized chaos ensued, and the neatly wrapped packages surrendered their carefully concealed secrets. We received some transformers from my Uncle Paul. These will be important later in the story. There were also several, several other things which I cannot remember. Um, then Dad handed Jesse and I each squarish packages to unwrap. They were game cartridges for the NES. His was Donkey Kong Jr., and mine was Excitebike. This revelation threw the room into confusion. Okay, that's overstating it. But it did cause Jesse and I to look at each other in confusion. Yeah. What gives? Clearly this was all a mistake, so I felt it was my job to straighten Dad out. So what follows is my correction address, if not absolutely verbatim, then in incredibly close to it. Oh, wow. Thank you, Dad. Thank you very much. These are Nintendo games. We, we have an Atari. You, you see, Nintendo is a way cooler, more powerful system, and our Atari just can't play them. Everyone, including yours truly, agrees that it's the UC part of that address that makes it so great. As I was making my attempt to bring clarity to the situation, Dad's way of handling it was to just sit there and let the grin on his face get bigger and bigger. After I was done, he allowed the words to hang in the air for a moment before playing dumb and saying, Oh, my mistake. Well, here you go. And he reached back behind the couch and pulled out a much larger rat package. Now, our, to that point, greatest hopes and dreams and aspirations in life were then realized when an NES emerged from underneath the package, or underneath the wrapping. And this was not only a Nintendo, this was the Nintendo. It was the one with the Super Mario Duck Hunt combo cartridge, <clears throat> two controllers, and the Zapper light gun. I don't remember anything from the next 30 minutes or so. This period of time was a blackout. It was lost to me. All I know is that Jesse and I went absolutely berserk. The sheer magnitude of the joy and excitement we felt must have temporarily taken my long-term memory recording device offline like a lightning strike to a power grid. Again, I have an unreliable report that I was running and jumping up and down through the halls between the living room and the bedroom, shouting repeatedly, I can't believe it's mine. So, after a brief but insufferable waiting period while the NES was set up, Jesse and I eagerly jumped in and started playing. It was almost too good to be true. It, it didn't seem real, or perhaps more accurately, it was more that everything did seem so real. When you were used to Atari 2600, then even the, to us today ultra-basic, rudimentary graphics, sound, and depth seem nothing short of magical and epic. Uh, now, of course, this wasn't the first time we had experienced the glory that was the NES. We had friends in the complex that had them and let us play. We also had numerous opportunities to bask in the mind-altering glow at several stores in the area. But this was different, because it was ours. 
We didn't have to go home. We were home. We didn't have to covet. It was ours. Now we could play any time we wanted. Oh, the magic, the greatness, the glory. At some point, we goaded Mom into trying Mario. And for her first amazing feat, she plunged headlong into a fatal collision with the game's very first Goomba. After getting the hang of the Goombas, jumping on or around them, things went smoothly until about 30 seconds later when she encountered the game's very first pit. It proved too alluring to resist. Her difficulty with the game was probably for the best, though, as our eagerness to reclaim the controllers quickly eroded any patience that the spectacle produced. A short time later, we were told that Uncle Paul was on his way and were instructed to demonstrate that we deeply appreciated the Transformers. The Transformers? That's right! We had totally forgotten! So when the knock came, I rushed up, snatched the transformer from its place, answered the door, and immediately launched into a profusion of half-sincere thank yous. To help underscore the half-honest interest and completely dishonest zeal, I decided to demonstrate the toy's transformative powers when the unthinkable happened. It broke. I stood locked in shock and horror as time phenomenologically lurched to a halt. But then the moment passed, time resumed, and I went back to playing Nintendo. Eventually, Paul tried his hand at it as well, producing nearly identical results to Mom's uh, previous misadventures. And, and that was Christmas 1989, the most memorable Christmas of my life. Now, it didn't take long for the details of the fire to emerge. Apparently, the mother came home drunk and fell asleep on the couch with a lit cigarette in her mouth. And this set off the chain of events which led to me singing We Didn't Start the Fire from a parked car in the middle of the night. The woman was okay. Uh, you know, she got a little singe, but she was okay. Uh, nobody died in the fire. But this woman and her son, they lost everything. Their apartment and all it contained were completely destroyed. Moreover, the apartments directly below received major water damage and the apartments on the third floor around it received major smoke damage. The hallway was rendered an oily, pitch-black smear from the smoke and heat, and the smoke detector, which had faithfully sounded the alarm from its ceiling perch, died in the line of duty, melting into a gruesome caricature and falling to the floor. The boy from apartment 10 was more or less our age. We had made his acquaintance, probably through playing in the halls, but never got close to him. I, I don't even remember his name. It also emerged that we were not going to be the only kids in the building to get a Nintendo that year. He was getting one as well. Of course, his was ruined in the fire, sitting under what used to be a Christmas tree, and it all came to naught. They moved away after that, and I never knowingly saw or heard from him or about him again. I hope that the experience hasn't scarred him. And I hope that his life has gone better since. I hope his mother got straightened out. And I hope he got his Nintendo. I would love to get the chance to speak with him again. But not knowing his name or anything about him, what are the odds? The contrast between his Christmas and mine and his parents and mine are as stark as the white painted walls on our first floor hallway and the murky black smudge that was the third floor. Our day of extreme joy, contrasted with his day of pain and fear, 
The respect and admiration for my parents engendered by the contrast with his mother is a paradox that will remain with me till the day I die. His mother got drunk and started a fire, which destroyed their home and his Nintendo, damaged several others' homes, and most likely ruined all their Christmases that year. My mother whisked us out to the safety of the car. My father, <clears throat> not knowing he was safe, thinking he was risking his life, and indeed risking his life in spirit, if not in truth, uh, uh, rushed back into the house to rescue our NES from the Inferno, preferring to face peril for the sake of a mere video game, simply because he knew it would mean the world to his boys. All these things serve to make the memory of Christmas 1989 at 1411-22nd Street, in the final analysis, a very bittersweet one, and yet among my most cherished. Okay, that is the story told live for the second time in less than a half an hour, or about a half an hour. <clears throat> And we are mere moments away from it becoming December 26th and it no longer being the 30th anniversary of these events. So, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the recording. Please, please, let me go to sleep. You're not going to wait up uh, Grand Theft Auto? It's only 89%. And it's so hot. Almost so hot. Almost 12 o'clock. Chloe was my assistant in the first recording, but has kind of been laying down and nodding off on the second one. So I'm tired. What do you expect? Yeah, I don't know. The very last thing I'll say before I end this recording is there's one potential pitfall in telling this story, and that it can sound like, oh, their life went terrible, but mine went excellent. Hooray! And that's not the intent. That's not the intent of the story. The intent is this intense uh intensely bad thing and intensely good thing happened all within the same building all within the course of 24 uh 12 8 6 hours of each other and and uh both left a profound impact on me my life is different than it would have been had had um this situation uh, not unfolded uh, and not unfolded the way it had. I am who I am today, not just wearing my uh, Sorry Mario Princesses in the Castle shirt, not just with my any, uh, Super Mario Brothers wallet, not just with my 3DS in my pocket, and not just with the podcast. I am who I am because of both the good and the bad that happened in this building in Des Moines, 30 years ago, on December 25th. And so it was very important for me to share it with you. I shared it with you earlier. It was more fun. It was more festive. But the jingle bells really got in the way. But the good news is, both recordings will stay on Facebook Live long past the time we die and are buried and turned to dust again. So I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope you had a happy new year. Eric Purcell in the chat says, Buenas noches. Buenas nachos, Senor Purcell. And uh, we will see you later. There's only three minutes left of Christmas, but heck, Merry Christmas.